Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Anne of Green Gables, the third book in our series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Now, Marilyn will bring the characters to life in this dramatic reading exclusively from the Zoomer Podcast Network. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to read us Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 19. A Concert, a Catastrophe, and a Confession. Marilla, can I go over to see Diana just for a minute? asked Anne, running breathlessly down from the East Gable one February evening. I don't see what you want to be traipsing about after dark for, said Marilla shortly. You and Diana walked home from school together and then stood down there in the snow for half an hour more, your tongues going the whole blessed time, clickety-clack. So I don't think you're very badly off to see her again. But she wants to see me, pleaded Anne. She has something very important to tell me. How do you know she has? Because she just signaled to me from her window. We have arranged a way to signal with our candles and cardboard. We set the candle on the window sill and make flashes by passing the cardboard back and forth. So many flashes mean a certain thing. It, w- it was my idea, Marilla. I'll warrant you it was, said Marilla emphatically. And the next thing, you'll be setting fire to the curtains with your signaling nonsense. Oh, we're very careful, Marilla. And it's so interesting. Two flashes mean, are you there? Three means, yes. And four, no. Five means come over as soon as possible because I have something important to reveal. Diane has just signaled five flashes and I'm really suffering to know what it is. Well, you needn't suffer any longer, said Marilla sarcastically. You can go, but you're to be back here in just ten minutes. Remember that. Anne did remember it and was back in the stipulated time, although probably no mortal will ever know just what it cost her to confine the discussion of Diana's important communication within the limits of ten minutes. But at least she had made good use of them. Oh, Marilla, what do you think? You know, tomorrow is Diana's birthday. Well, her mother told her she could ask me to go home with her from school and stay all night with her. "'and her cousins are coming over from Newbridge in a big pung sleigh "'to go to the debating club concert at the hall tomorrow night, "'and they are going to take Diana and me to the concert. "'If you'll let me go, that is. "'Oh, you will, won't you, Marilla? "'Oh, I feel so excited.' "'You can calm down, then, because you're not going. "'You're better at home in your own bed, "'and as for that club concert, it's all nonsense.' and little girls should not be allowed to go out to such places at all. Oh, I'm sure the debating club is the most respectable affair, pleaded Anne. I'm not saying it isn't, but you're not going to begin gadding about to concerts and staying out all hours of the night. Pretty doings for children. I'm surprised at Mrs. Barry's letting Diana go. But it's such a very special occasion, mourned Anne on the verge of tears. Diana has only one birthday in a year. It isn't as if birthdays were common things, Marilla. Prissy Andrews is going to recite, Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. That is such a good moral piece, Marilla. I'm sure it would do me, well, do me lots of good to hear it. 
and the choir are going to sing four lovely, pathetic songs that are pretty near as good as hymns. And, oh, Marilla, the minister is going to take part. Yes, indeed, he is. He's going to give an address. That will be just about the same thing as a sermon. Please, mayn't I go, Marilla? You heard what I said, Anne, didn't you? Take off your boots now and go to bed. It's past eight. There's just one more thing, Marilla, said Anne, with the air of producing the last shot in her locker. Mrs. Barry told Diana that we might sleep in the spare room bed. Think of the honor of your little Anne being put in the spare room bed. It's an honor you'll have to get along without. Go to bed, Anne, and don't let me hear another word out of you. When Anne, with tears rolling over her cheeks, had gone sorrowfully upstairs, Matthew, who had been apparently sound asleep on the lounge during the whole dialogue, opened his eyes and said decidedly, "'Well, now, Marilla, I think you ought to let Anne go.' "'I don't, then,' retorted Marilla. "'Who's bringing this child up, Matthew? You or me?' "'Well, well, now, you,' admitted Matthew. "'Don't interfere, then.' Well, no, I ain't interfering. It ain't interfering to have your own opinion. And my opinion is that you ought to let Anne go. You'd think I ought to let Anne go to the moon if she took the notion, I've no doubt, was Marilla's amiable rejoinder. I might have let her spend the night with Diana, if that was all. But I don't approve of this concert plan. She'd go there and catch cold, like as not, and have her head filled up with nonsense and excitement. It would unsettle her for a week. I understand that child's disposition, and what's good for it better than you, Matthew. I think you ought to let Anne go, repeated Matthew firmly. Argument was not his strong point, but holding fast to his opinion certainly was. Marilla gave a gasp of helplessness and took refuge in silence. The next morning, when Anne was washing the breakfast dishes in the pantry, Matthew paused on his way out to the barn to say to Marilla again, I think you ought to let Anne go, Marilla. For a moment, Marilla looked things not lawful to be uttered. Then she yielded to the inevitable and said tartly, Very well, she can go since nothing else will please you. Anne flew out of the pantry, dripping dishcloth in hand. Oh, Marilla, Marilla! Oh, say those blessed words again. I guess once is enough to say them. This is Matthew's doings, and I wash my hands of it. If you catch pneumonia sleeping in a strange bed or coming out of the hot hall in the middle of the night, don't blame me. Blame Matthew. And surely... You're dripping greasy water all over the floor. I never saw such a careless child. Oh, I know I'm a great trial to you, Marilla, said Anne repentantly. I make so many mistakes. But then just think of all the mistakes I don't make, although I might. I'll get some sand and scrub up the spots before I go to school. Oh, Marilla, my heart was just set on going to that concert. I never was to a concert in my life, and when the other girls talk about them in school, I feel so out of it. You didn't know just how I felt about it, but you see, Matthew did. Matthew understands me, and it's so nice to be understood, Marilla. 
Anne was too excited to do herself justice as to lessons that morning in school. Gilbert Blythe spelled her down in class and left her clear out of sight in mental arithmetic. Anne's consequent humiliation was less than it might have been, however, in view of the concert and the spare room bed. She and Diana talked so constantly about it all day that with a stricter teacher than Mr. Phillips, dire disgrace must inevitably have been their portion. Anne felt that she could not have borne it if she had not been going to the concert, for nothing else was discussed all that day in school. The Avonlea Debating Club, which met fortnightly all winter, had had several smaller free entertainments, but this was to be a big affair. Admission ten cents in aid of the library. The Avonlea young people had been practicing for weeks, and all the scholars were especially interested in it by reason of older brothers and sisters who were going to take part. Everybody in school over nine years of age expected to go, except Carrie Sloan, whose father shared Marilla's opinions about small girls going out to night concerts. Carrie Sloan cried into her grammar all that afternoon and felt that life was not worth living. For Anne, the real excitement began with the dismissal of school, and increased therefrom in crescendo until it reached to a crash of positive ecstasy in the concert itself. They had a perfectly elegant tea, and then came the delicious occupation of dressing in Diana's little room upstairs. Diana did Anne's front hair in the new pompadour style, and Anne tied Diana's bows with the especial knack she possessed, and they experimented with at least half a dozen different ways of arranging their back hair. At last, they were ready, cheeks scarlet and eyes glowing with excitement. True, Anne could not help a little pang when she contrasted her plain black tam and shapeless, tight-sleeved, homemade gray cloth coat with Diana's jaunty fur cap and smart little jacket. But she remembered in time that she had an imagination and could use it. Then Diana's cousins, the Murrays from Newbridge, came. They all crowded into the big pung sleigh among straw and furry robes. Anne reveled in the drive to the hall, slipping along over the satin-smooth roads with the snow crisping under the runners. There was a magnificent sunset, and the snowy hills and deep blue water of the St. Lawrence Gulf seemed to rim in the splendor like a huge bowl of pearl and sapphire trimmed with wine and fire. Tinkles of sleigh bells and distant laughter that seemed like the mirth of wood elves came from every quarter. Oh, Diana, breathed Anne, squeezing Diana's mittened hand under the fur robe. Isn't it all like a beautiful dream? Oh, do I really look the same as usual? I feel so different that it seems to me it must show in my looks. You look awfully nice, said Diana who, having just received a compliment from one of her cousins, felt that she ought to pass it on. You've got the loveliest color. The program that night was a series of thrills for at least one listener in the audience, and, as Anne assured Diana, every succeeding thrill was thrillier than the last. 
when Prissy Andrews, attired in a new pink silk waist with a string of pearls about her smooth white throat and real carnations in her hair, rumor whispered that the master had sent all the way to town for them for her, climbed the slimy ladder, dark without one ray of light, and shivered in luxurious sympathy when the choir sang far above the gentle daisies and gazed at the ceiling as if it were frescoed with angels. When Sam Sloan proceeded to explain and illustrate how Sockery set a hen and laughed until people sitting near her laughed too, more out of sympathy with her than with amusement at a selection that was rather threadbare, even in Avonlea. And when Mr. Phillips gave Mark Antony's oration over the dead body of Caesar in the most heart-stirring tones, looking at Prissy Andrews at the end of every sentence, Anne felt that she could rise and mutiny on the spot if but one Roman citizen led the way. Only one number on the program failed to interest her. When Gilbert Blythe recited Bingen on the Rhine, and picked up Rhoda Murray's library book and read it until he had finished, when she sat rigidly stiff and motionless while Diana clapped her hands until they tingled. It was eleven when they got home, sated with dissipation, but with the exceeding sweet pleasure of talking it all over still to come. Everybody seemed asleep, and the house was dark and silent. Anne and Diana tiptoed into the parlor, a long, narrow room out of which the spare room opened. It was pleasantly warm and dimly lighted by the embers of a fire in the grate. Let's undress here, said Diana. It's so nice and warm. Hasn't it been a delightful time, sighed Anne rapturously. It must be splendid to get up and recite there. Do you suppose we will ever be asked to do it, Diana? Oh, yes, of course, some day. They're always wanting the big scholars to recite. Gilbert Blythe does often, and he's only two years older than us. Oh, Anne, how could you pretend not to listen to him? When he came to the line, there's another, not a sister. He looked right down at you. Diana, said Anne with dignity, you are my bosom friend. "'but I cannot allow even you to speak to me of that person. "'Are you ready for bed? "'Hey, let's run a race and see who'll get to the bed first. "'The suggestion appealed to Diana. "'The two little white-clad figures flew down the long room, "'through the spare room door, and bounded on the bed at the same moment. "'And then something moved beneath them, "'and there was a gasp and a cry.' and somebody said, in muffled accents, a merciful goodness. Anne and Diana were never able to tell just how they got off that bed and out of the room. They only knew that after one frantic rush, they found themselves tiptoeing shiveringly upstairs. Oh, who was it? What was it? whispered Anne, her teeth chattering with cold and fright. It was Aunt Josephine said Diana, gasping with laughter. Oh, Annie was Aunt Josephine, however she came to be there. Oh, and I know she'll be furious. It's dreadful. It's really dreadful. <laughs> but did you ever know, it, know anything so funny, Anne? 
Oh, it's your Aunt Josephine. She's father's aunt, and she lives in Charlottetown. She's awfully old, seventy anyhow, and I don't believe she was ever a little girl. We are expecting her out for a visit, but not so soon. She's awfully prim and proper, and she'll scold dreadfully about this, I know. Well, we'll have to sleep with Minnie May, and you can't think how she kicks. Miss Josephine Barry did not appear at the early breakfast the next morning. Mrs. Barry smiled kindly at the two little girls. Did you have a good time last night? I tried to stay awake until you came home, for I wanted to tell you Aunt Josephine had come and that you'd have to go upstairs after all. But I was so tired I fell asleep. I hope you didn't disturb your Aunt Diana. Diana preserved a discreet silence, but she and Anne exchanged furtive smiles of guilty amusement across the table. Anne hurried home after breakfast, and so remained in blissful ignorance of the disturbance which presently resulted in the Barry household until the late afternoon when she went down to Mrs. Lynn's on an errand for Marilla. So you and Diana nearly frightened poor old Miss Barry to death last night, said Mrs. Lynn severely, but with a twinkle in her eye. Mrs. Barry was here a few minutes ago on her way to Carmody. She's feeling real worried over it. Old Miss Barry was in a terrible temper when she got up this morning, and Josephine Barry's temper is no joke, I can tell you that. She wouldn't speak to Diana at all. It wasn't Diana's fault, said Anne contritely. It was mine. I suggested racing to see who would get into bed first. I knew it said Mrs. Lynde, with the exultation of a correct guesser. I knew that idea came out of your head. Well, it's made a nice lot of trouble, that's what. Old Miss Barry came out to stay for a month, but she declares she won't stay another day and is going right back to town tomorrow, Sunday and all as it is. She'd have gone today if they could have taken her. She had promised to pay for a quarter's music lessons for Diana, but now she is determined to do nothing at all for such a tomboy. Oh, I guess they had a lively time of it there this morning. The Barrys must feel cut up. Old Miss Barry is rich, and they'd like to keep on the good side of her. Of course, Mrs. Barry didn't say just that to me, but I'm a pretty good judge of human nature, that's what. Oh! I'm such an unlucky girl, mourned Anne. I'm always getting into scrapes myself and getting my best friends, people I shed my heart's blood for, into them too. Can you tell me why it is so, Mrs. Lynde? It's because you're too heedless and impulsive, child. That's what. You never stop to think. Whatever comes into your head to say or do, you say or do it without a moment's reflection. Oh, but that's the best of it, protested Anne. Something just flashes into your mind, so so exciting, and and you must out with it. If you stop to think it over, you, you, you spoil it all. Well, haven't you ever felt that yourself, Mrs. Lynde? No, Mrs. Lynde had not. She shook her head sagely. You must learn to think a little, Anne. That's what. The proverb you need to go by is, look before you leap, especially into spare room beds. <laughs> Mrs. Lynde laughed comfortably over her mild joke, but Anne remained pensive.
She saw nothing to laugh at in the situation, which to her eyes appeared very serious. When she left Mrs. Lynde's, she took her way across the crusted fields to Orchard Slope. Diana met her at the kitchen door. "'Your Aunt Josephine was very cross about it, wasn't she?' whispered Anne. "'Yes,' answered Diana, stifling a giggle with an apprehensive glance over her shoulder at the closed sitting-room door. "'She was fairly dancing with rage, Anne. Oh, how she scolded! She said I was the worst-behaved girl she ever saw, and that my parents ought to be ashamed of the way they had brought me up. She says she won't stay, and I'm sure I don't care.' But father and mother do. Well, why didn't you tell them it was my fault? demanded Anne. It's likely I do such a thing, isn't it? said Diana with just scorn. I know tell-tale, Anne Shirley, and anyway, I was just as much to blame as you. Well, I'm going in to tell her myself, said Anne resolutely. Diana stared. And surely you never well she'll she'll eat you alive. Don't frighten me any more than I am frightened, implored Anne. I'd rather walk up to a cannon's mouth. But I've got to do it, Diana. It was my fault, and I've got to confess. I've had practice in confessing, fortunately. Well, she's in the room, said Diana. You can go in if you want to. I wouldn't dare. "'and I don't believe you'll do a bit of good.' "'With this encouragement, Anne bearded the lion in its den. "'That is to say, walked resolutely up to the sitting-room door "'and knocked faintly. "'A sharp, "'Come in!' followed. "'Miss Josephine Barry, thin, prim, and rigid, "'was knitting fiercely by the fire, "'her wrath quite unappeased, "'and her eyes snapping through her gold-rimmed glasses.' She wheeled around in her chair, expecting to see Diana, and beheld a white-faced girl whose great eyes were brimmed up with a mixture of desperate courage and shrinking terror. "'Who are you?' demanded Miss Josephine Barry, without ceremony. "'I'm, I'm Anne of Green Gables,' said the small visitor tremulously, clasping her hands with her characteristic gesture, and I've come to confess, if you please. Confess what? That, that it was all my fault about jumping into bed on you last night. I suggested it. Diana would never have thought of such a thing, I'm sure. Diana is a very ladylike girl, Miss Barry, so you must see now how unjust it is to blame her. Oh, I must, eh? I rather think Diana did her share of the jumpings, at least. Such carryings on in a respectable house. Oh, but we were only in fun, persisted Anne. I think you ought to forgive us, Miss Barry, now that we've apologized. And anyhow, please forgive Diana and let her have her music lessons. Diana's heart is set on her music lessons, Miss Barry, and I know too well what it is to set your heart on a thing and not get it. If you must be cross with anyone, be cross with me. I, I've been so used in my early days to having people cross at me that I can endure it much better than Diana can. Much of the snap had gone out of the old lady's eyes by this time and was replaced by a twinkle of amused interest. But she still said severely, 
I don't think it is any excuse for you that you were only in fun. Little girls never indulged in that kind of fun when I was young. You don't know what it is to be awakened out of a sound sleep after a long and arduous journey by two great girls coming bounced down on you. I don't know, but I can imagine, said Anne eagerly. I'm sure it must have been very disturbing, but then there is our side of it, too. Have you any imagination, Miss Barry? If you have, just put yourself in our place. We didn't know there was anybody in that bed, and you nearly scared us to death. It, it was simply awful the way we felt, and then we couldn't sleep in the spare room after being promised. Well, I, I suppose you are used to sleeping in spare rooms, but just imagine what you would feel like if you were a little orphan girl who had never had such an honor. All the snap had gone by this time. Miss Barry actually laughed, a sound which caused Diana, waiting in speechless anxiety in the kitchen outside, to give a great gasp of relief. I'm afraid my imagination is a little rusty. It's so long since I used it, she said. I dare say your claim to sympathy is just as strong as mine. It all depends on the way we look at it. Sit down here and tell me about yourself. Oh, I, I'm very sorry I can't, said Anne firmly. I, I would like to, because you you seem like an interesting lady, and you, you might even be a kindred spirit, although you don't look very much like it. But it is my duty to go home to Miss Marilla Cuthbert. Miss Marilla Cuthbert is a very kind lady who has taken me to bring up properly. She's doing her best, but, but it's very discouraging work. You must not blame her because I jumped on the bed. But before I go, I do wish you would tell me if you will forgive Diana and stay just as long as you meant to in Avonlea. I think perhaps I will, if you will come over and talk to me occasionally, said Miss Barry. That evening, Miss Barry gave Diana a silver bangle bracelet and told the senior members of the household that she had unpacked her valise. I've made up my mind to stay simply for the sake of getting better acquainted with that Anne girl, she said frankly. She amuses me, and at my time of life an amusing person is a rarity. Marilla's only comment when she heard the story was, I told you so. This was for Matthew's benefit. Miss Barry stayed her month out and over. She was a more agreeable guest than usual, for Anne kept her in good humor. They became firm friends. When Miss Barry went away, she said, Remember, you Anne girl, when you come to town, you're to visit me, and I'll put you up in my very sparest spare room bed to sleep. Miss Barry was a kindred spirit after all, Anne confided to Marilla. You wouldn't think so to look at her, but she is. You don't find it right out at first, as in Matthew's case, but after a while you come to see it. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them out in the world. Chapter 20 A Good Imagination Gone Wrong Spring had come once more to Green Gables. The beautiful, capricious, reluctant Canadian spring, 
lingering along through April and May in a succession of sweet, fresh, chilly days with pink sunsets and miracles of resurrection and growth. The maples in Lover's Lane were red-budded, and little curly ferns pushed up around the dryad's bubble. Away up in the barrens, behind Mr. Silas Sloane's place, the mayflowers blossomed out, pink and white stars of sweetness under their brown leaves. All the schoolgirls and boys had one golden afternoon gathering them, coming home in the clear, echoing twilight with arms and baskets full of flowery spoil. "'I'm so sorry for people who live in lands where there are no mayflowers,' said Anne. "'Diana says perhaps they have something better, but there couldn't be anything better than mayflowers, could there, Marilla?' And Diana says, if they don't know what they are like, they don't miss them. But I think that is the saddest thing of all. I think it would be tragic, Marilla, not to know what Mayflowers are like and not to miss them. Do you know what I think Mayflowers are, Marilla? I think they must be the souls of the flowers that died last summer, and this is their heaven. But we had a splendid time today, Marilla. We had our lunch down in a big mossy hollow by an old well. Such a romantic spot. Charlie Sloan dared Artie Gillis to jump over it, and Artie did because he wouldn't take a dare. Nobody would in school. It is very fashionable to dare. Mr. Phillips gave all the mayflowers he found to Prissy Andrews, and I heard him say, Sweets to the sweet. He got that out of a book, I know, but it shows he has some imagination. Well, I was offered some Mayflowers, too, but I rejected them with scorn. I can't tell you the person's name because because I've, I've vowed never to let it cross my lips. We made wreaths of the Mayflowers and put them on our hats, and when the time came to go home, we marched in procession down the road, two by two, with our bouquets and wreaths, singing, My Home on the Hill. Oh, it was so thrilling, Marilla. All Mr. Silas Sloan's folks rushed out to see us, and everybody we met on the road stopped and stared after us. We made a real sensation. Not much wonder, such silly doings, was Marilla's response. After the Mayflowers came the Violets, and Violet Vale was empurpled with them. Anne walked through it on her way to school with reverent steps and worshipping eyes as if she trod on holy ground. Somehow, she told Diana, when I'm going through here, I don't really care whether anybody gets ahead of me in class or not. When I'm up in school, it's all different, and I care as much as ever— but there's such a lot of different ands in me. I, I sometimes think that is why I'm such a troublesome person. If I was just the one Anne, it would be ever so much more comfortable, but then it wouldn't be half so interesting. One June evening, when the orchards were pink-blossomed again, when the frogs were singing silverly sweet in the marshes about the head of the Lake of Shining Waters, and the air was full of the savor of clover fields and balsamic fir woods, Anne was sitting by her gable window. She had been studying her lessons, but it had grown too dark to see the book, so she had fallen into wide-eyed reverie. Looking out past the boughs of the Snow Queen, 
once more bestarred with its tufts of blossom. In all essential respects, the little gable chamber was unchanged. The walls were as white, the pincushion as hard, the chairs as stiffly and yellowly upright as ever. Yet the whole character of the room was altered. It was full of a new, vital, pulsing personality that seemed to pervade it, and to be quite independent of schoolgirl books and dresses and ribbons, and even of the cracked blue jug full of apple blossoms on the table. It was as if all the dreams, sleeping and waking, of its vivid occupant had taken a visible, although unmaterial, form and had tapestried the bare room with splendid, filmy tissues of rainbow and moonshine. Presently, Marilla came briskly in with some of Anne's freshly ironed school aprons. She hung them over a chair and sat down with a short sigh. She had had one of her headaches that afternoon, and although the pain had gone, she felt weak and tuckered out, as she expressed it. Anne looked at her with eyes limpid with sympathy. I do truly wish I could have had the headache in your place, Marilla. I would have endured it joyfully for your sake. I guess you did your part in attending to the work and letting me rest, said Marilla. You seem to have got on fairly well and made fewer mistakes than usual. Of course, it wasn't exactly necessary to starch Matthew's handkerchiefs. And most people, when they put a pie in the oven to warm up for dinner, take it out and eat it when it gets hot, instead of leaving it to be burned to a crisp. But that doesn't seem to be your way, evidently. Headaches always left Marilla somewhat sarcastic. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Anne penitently. I never thought about that pie from the moment I put it in the oven till now, although I felt instinctively that there was something missing on the dinner table. I, I was firmly resolved when you left me in charge this morning not to imagine anything but keep my thoughts on facts, and I did pretty well until I put the pie in, and then an irresistible temptation came to me to imagine I was an enchanted princess shut up in a lonely tower, with a handsome knight riding to my rescue on a coal-black steed. So, so that is how I came to forget the pie. I didn't know I starched the handkerchiefs. All the time I was ironing, I was trying to think of a name for a new island Diana and I have discovered up the brook. It's the most ravishing spot, Marilla. There are two maple trees on it, and the brook flows right around it. At last it struck me that it would be splendid to call it Victoria Island, because we found it on the Queen's birthday. Both Diana and I are very loyal. But I'm sorry about that pie and the handkerchiefs. I want it to be extra good today because it's an anniversary. Do you remember what happened this day last year, Marilla? No, I can't think of anything special. Oh, Marilla, it was the day I came to Green Gables. I shall never forget it. It was the turning point in my life. Of course, of course, it wouldn't seem so important to you. I've been here for a year, and I've been so happy. Of course, of course I've had my troubles, but, but one can live down troubles. Are you sorry you kept me, Marilla? No, I can't say I'm sorry, said Marilla. 
who sometimes wondered how she could have lived before Anne came to Green Gables. No, not exactly sorry. If you've finished your lessons, Anne, I want you to run over and ask Mrs. Barry if she'll lend me Diana's apron pattern. Oh, oh it, it's too dark, cried Anne. Too dark? Why, it's only twilight. And goodness knows you've gone over often enough after dark. I'll, I'll go over early in the morning, said Anne eagerly. I'll get up at sunrise and go over, Marilla. What has got into your head now, Anne Shirley? I want that pattern to cut out your new apron this evening. Go at once and be smart, too. I'll, I'll have to go round by the road then said Anne, taking up her hat reluctantly. Go by the road and waste half an hour. I'd like to catch you. I I can't go through the haunted wood, Marilla, cried Anne desperately. Marilla stared. The haunted wood? Are you crazy? What under the canopy is the haunted wood? The spruce wood over the brook, said Anne in a whisper. Fiddlesticks! There is no such thing as a haunted wood anywhere. Who has been telling you such stuff? Nobody, confessed Anne. Diana and I just imagined the wood was haunted. All the places around here are so, well, so commonplace. We just got this up for our own amusement. We began it in April. Well, a haunted wood is so very romantic, Marilla. We chose the spruce grove because it's so gloomy. Oh, we have imagined the most harrowing things... There's a white lady walks along the brook just about this time of the night and wrings her hands and utters wailing cries. She appears when there is to be a death in the family. And the ghost of a little murdered child haunts the corner up by Idlewild. It creeps up behind you and lays its cold fingers on your hand. So, Oh, Marilla, it gives me a shudder to think of it. And, and there's a headless man stalks up and down the path and skeletons glower at you between the boughs. Oh, Marilla, I wouldn't go through the haunted wood after dark now for anything. I'd be sure that white things would reach out from behind the trees and grab me. Did anyone ever hear the like? ejaculated Marilla, who had listened in dumb amazement. And surely, do you mean to tell me you believe all that wicked nonsense of your own imagination? Well, not believe exactly, faltered Anne. At least I don't believe it in daylight. But, but after dark, Marilla, it's different. That is when ghosts walk. There are no such things as ghosts, Anne. Oh, but there are, Marilla, cried Anne eagerly. I know people who have seen them. And they are respectable people. Charlie Sloane says that his grandmother saw his grandfather driving home the cows one night after he'd been buried for a year. You know Charlie Sloane's grandmother wouldn't tell a story for anything. She's a very religious woman. And, and Mrs. Thomas's father was pursued home one night by a lamb of fire with its head cut off hanging by a strip of skin. He said he knew it was the spirit of his brother and that it was a warning he would die within nine days. But he didn't, but he died two years after. So you see, it was really true. And Ruby Gillis says, Anne Shirley, 
interrupted Marilla firmly. I never want to hear you talking in this fashion again. I've had my doubts about that imagination of yours right along, and if this is going to be the outcome of it, I won't countenance any such doings. You'll go right over to Barry's, and you'll go through that spruce grove just for a lesson and a warning to you, and never let me hear a word out of your head about haunted woods again. Anne might plead and cry as she liked, and did, for her terror was very real. Her imagination had run away with her, and she held the spruce grove in mortal dread after nightfall. But Marilla was inexorable. She marched the shrinking ghost seer down to the spring and ordered her to proceed straight away over the bridge and into the dusky retreats of wailing ladies and headless specters beyond. Oh, Marilla, how can you be so cruel? sobbed Anne. What would you feel like if a white thing did snatch me up and carry me off? I'll risk it, said Marilla unfeelingly. You know I always mean what I say. I'll cure you of imagining ghosts into places. March, now. Anne marched. That is, she stumbled over the bridge and went shuddering up the horrible dim path beyond. Anne never forgot that walk. Bitterly did she repent the license she had given to her imagination. The goblins of her fancy lurked in every shadow about her, reaching out their cold, fleshless hands to grasp the terrified small girl who had called them into being. A white strip of birch bark blowing up from the hollow over the brown floor of the grove made her heart stand still. The long-drawn wail of two old boughs rubbing against each other brought out the perspiration in beads on her forehead. The swoop of bats in the darkness over her was as the wings of unearthly creatures. When she reached Mr. William Bell's field, she fled across it as if pursued by an army of white things, and arrived at the Barry kitchen door so out of breath that she could hardly gasp out her request for the apron pattern. Diana was away, so that she had no excuse to linger. The dreadful return journey had to be faced. Anne went back over it with shut eyes, preferring to take the risk of dashing her brains out among the boughs to that of seeing a white thing. When she finally stumbled over the log bridge, she drew one long, shivering breath of relief. Well, so nothing caught you, said Marilla unsympathetically. Oh, oh, Mar Marilla, chattered Anne. I'll b b b be cont contented with c commonplaces after this. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Anne of Green Gables. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Zneimer. This is our third book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Jane Eyre, and Marilyn Lightstone Reads, A Christmas Carol, if you haven't already. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. While you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.